This is a sermon from the Highlands Congregation of Park Church. We hope it helps you walk with the Lord and lead others to Christ. Learn more and find more resources at parkchurch.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13. Again, we're reading from Matthew 9, verses 9 to 13. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Deanna. Good morning. It's good to see you all. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church. He is risen. Still. He's still alive. Uh, The king of the universe is still risen, and that's good news. Uh, We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus every Sunday. It's actually why the kind of early church moved from worshiping on Saturdays to Sundays. It's to celebrate the beginning of a whole new creation. Through the resurrection of Jesus, it was this sense that God is making all things new. And so we gather at the beginning of the week to celebrate the new creation that Jesus is bringing through his love and his power. But we celebrate that in particular throughout what's called Eastertide, which are the 50 days between Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, and Pentecost. And we celebrate the arrival of the Holy Spirit uh, as God poured out his spirit on his people to advance the mission of God around the world. And that's the mission that we're a part of today. So we get to gather today to celebrate Jesus, worship him because of his uh, resurrection, his lordship, his love, his grace, uh, but also to be filled up with the spirit, to be sent back out into the city, to participate in what God's doing in the world, to bring transformation through his grace. And that's what we get to talk about uh, today. Uh, Before we get into the passage, I want to follow up our email. Our elder team sent out an email this week uh, about me going on a sabbatical this summer. And so I just want to say uh, to you all as a church, thank you. uh, And to our leadership team, uh, thank you. We're really grateful as a family uh, for the chance. If that's news to you, a sabbatical uh, isn't like a kind of a mayday, mayday, mayday thing. It's an investment in rhythms of faithful work and then rest. And so to take a few months to three months it'll be uh, to uh, reconnect with family and rejuvenate with God and just spend time resting um, is, a, is a gift. Uh, it's a real gift. It's not something I feel entitled to. I just feel really, really grateful. And so um, thanks for that. But I also want to express my encouragement about where our staff team is. Uh, our staff team is in a really healthy season. And so to have uh, a church that has a bunch of wonderful preachers and leaders and pastoral team and staff to continue uh, to equip and serve you all as we all together as a church family do the work of the ministry together, loving and serving and caring for one another, pushing each other to Jesus. I'm just encouraged about where our team is uh, and uh, excited about, again, uh, we'll be in the Psalms this summer. And so we have a great team of preachers that'll be faithfully unpacking the Psalms this summer. We get from Psalm 110 to Psalm 119, which is 
a big one. We'll take a few weeks on Psalm 119. They will, and it'll be wonderful. Um, also, I want to just share my excitement about uh, where we're at as a church. I think it's been a really hard season in some ways, but then as I look at kind of the wisdom of God in difficulty, so many things that he's been pruning and maturing and growing us uh, throughout this season, uh, really to put us, and I think in my opinion, and as our elder teams consider, really preparing us uh, to be a part of what he's doing in the city and to continue to be a part of this mission to make disciples of Jesus throughout the city. And so I'm really encouraged, excited about uh, being back in the fall and, and what God has in store for us. Um, before we get into the word this morning, we need to pray. Uh, my prayer for this morning is going to be really simple. I'm going to pray that we would once again be amazed by God's grace. The grace of Jesus we see in this passage is stunning. It's stunning. And we kind of get our minds around some of the cultural background and the way that their society thought about people like Matthew. Um, it's, it's incredible. Uh, we're going to read a story today written by the author uh, of Matthew is writing his own story of when he became a disciple of Jesus. And he's going to write it in a way that really celebrates God's grace. And so I'm going to pray that God would awaken us to the beauty and the glory of his grace. So would you join me as we uh, pray to the God of the universe? Father, we uh, are so grateful for your mercy. Stronger than darkness, new every morning. Our sins are many. Uh, there are many, but your mercy is more. And maybe there are people that come in today very aware of the brokenness within them. Uh, maybe it's stuff that they've been feeling and experiencing for their whole lives. Just feeling like they failed in ways or have turned from you or feel a reality of brokenness. And so I pray that your mercy and your grace today would pierce the clouds and give life. That they would, as it were, arise today. Wake up to the transformative power of your grace today. Uh, maybe people that just had a hard week feel like marriage has been struggling, feel failures as, as a father or as a mother, feel adrift in their heart towards you, affections that have waned, feel addictions to sin and just a kind of proclivity to attitudes and behaviors that they just feel tired of. And so I pray for them today, your grace would pierce the clouds. Your love, your mercy, your faithfulness would reach into the depths of their hearts, not just into our heads, but into the depths of our soul that we'd be rooted and grounded in your amazing grace and steadfast love. And so wake us up to your grace. Make us not just the people that kind of experience your grace, but then embody that in our attitudes towards one another and our attitudes towards others, that we would be a community of grace because of your grace towards us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to ask you what, what you think defines a Christian, uh, what makes someone a Christian, uh, what would your heart jump towards? Like if you're thinking, is that person a Christian? What would you want to like think or see or feel to be able to make an assessment like that? Not that we should make assessments like that over people, but like what, what do you think makes a Christian? Is it somebody that prayed a prayer when they were a kid? Right? There's a, a generation where there's a big emphasis on praying a prayer as if a prayer, if said rightly in the right way, uh, with genuine heart, whatever, that, that is what makes somebody a Christian. And so you have kind of parents or people that are trying to get their children at whatever age to pray the prayer, uh, or a person on an airplane to pray the prayer, or a person kind of at a front door visitation or on the street to pray a prayer as if 
a prayer is what makes someone a Christian. So the prayer would go something like, you know, Jesus, I believe that you're the Son of God. I believe that you died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sins. And I put my trust in you. And if you've prayed that prayer or said something like those in words, you're a Christian, right? Those prayers are, are good. Praying to confess sin to God, praying to express trust in God, praying to actually uh, desire and respond to God's invitation, good. But is that what makes somebody a Christian? Uh, maybe it is kind of adherence to a certain set of doctrinal beliefs. Like as long as you believe these right doctrines and don't believe these wrong doctrines, as long as you're in some kind of like uh, version of orthodoxy, however your kind of like definition of how big or small orthodoxy is, as long as you're inside some doctrinal circle and not outside the bounds, holding to these old beliefs, that's what makes you a Christian. Or maybe it's attendance at religious gatherings. Come to church on a, on a Sunday. Or if you're, you know, when I became a Christian, our church was like Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, youth group, Wednesday night. You know, and it's kind of like, if you go to all that stuff, not only are you a Christian, you are a really good one. You know, uh, you're a great Christian. So is it attendance at religious events? Is it abstaining from certain practices? You know, the old saying, I don't drink, smoke, or chew, or hang with those who do. You know, I'm like, uh, I do the right things. I don't do the wrong things. I'm, I'm engaged uh, in kind of like the right behaviors or attitudes. Um, what is it? All of those things actually matter, right? Your behavior, ethics, they matter, right? Uh, praying matters. Being a part of religious community matters. Doctrine and theology and, and thinking about God as he is and thinking about the world as he describes and defines reality is healthy. These things matter. But is that what makes somebody a Christian? Did you know the word Christian uh, actually wasn't used to describe the early followers of Jesus until almost a decade after the resurrection. It's only used twice in the book of Acts and once in Peter's first letter, three times in the whole New Testament to describe the people of God. Christian wasn't even kind of the, the most common phrase used to describe followers of Jesus. In fact, throughout the book of Acts, the most common phrase to describe followers of Jesus and people who are a part of God's people uh, is people who belong to the way. It's called those who practice the way or belong to the way or those who participate in the way. Uh, and the way is kind of a way to refer to the way of Jesus, which is referring back to the way that Jesus talked about his people, which was through this framework of discipleship. That a Christian is a disciple or an apprentice or one who follows the way of Jesus. And so when you're asking, am I a Christian? The question isn't, did I pray a prayer? The question isn't, do I attend services? The question isn't, do I have right doctrine? The question is, do I behave rightly? And, and I kind of avoid these other behaviors. The question is, am I following Jesus? Not, am I perfect? Not, am I put together? Not, am I right theologically or wrong theologically or on this side of the camp or that side of the camp? Am I following Jesus? Do I trust in and follow after Jesus? Am I a disciple? So what, what is a disciple? I'm a, a, one of the best ways to understand what a disciple is is to spend time in the Gospels. The Gospels were written to help us to understand who Jesus is, what he came to do, and what it means to follow him. And we've talked about this before. Anytime you're reading through the Gospels, which if you don't ever read the Bible on your own, I would encourage you just hop into one of the Gospels. You can spend time in Matthew. We'll be talking about it on Sundays. We've got some Bible study books. Spend time in the Gospels. And begin to read the Gospels asking those three questions. Based on this passage, who is it saying that Jesus is? What did he come to do? 
What does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be his disciple? And in the passage that we're looking at today, it gets to the heart of discipleship. In fact, in Matthew, really, chapter 8, 9, and 10, it's giving these stories about the authority and the power of Jesus. Nine stories. And these nine stories that are separated by threes, three stories, and then a punctuation, three stories, punctuation, three stories, punctuation. The punctuations are descriptions about what it means to follow Jesus. And we're back at to one of those punctuation marks. In the middle of all of these stories of the power of Jesus to transform and to heal and to change and to restore and to forgive and to create peace and shalom and to cast out demons and his authority over all things, it's showing you who he is, that he is indeed the Son of God who's come to bring restoration, to bring the kingdom of heaven back to earth where it belongs, where God and humanity are reconciled and he's restoring everything that's been broken by sin, forgiving sins, At the heart of all of these things, at the heart of all of these things are these explanations of what it means to follow him, to be a part of this new creation project where God is making all things new and bringing restoration to the world. And in this passage in particular, we get one of the most beautiful and really one of the first in the Gospel of Matthew and most outstanding descriptions about the core reality of a disciple of Jesus. And it's simply this, that first and foremost, a disciple is someone who has been reconciled to God by grace. By grace. A disciple, first and foremost, isn't somebody who believes the right things, isn't somebody who behaves the right ways, isn't somebody who attends the right services or engages in the right practices. A disciple is first and foremost, somebody who has been reconciled to God by sheer, outstanding, generous, stunning, amazing grace. It's grace. And I want you to see in the passage, what we're going to do, we're going to walk through the passage, we're going to make four observations as we go through the passage. Four observations. And I want you to see this outstanding, incredible grace of God through which he's reconciling people to himself, through which he's building a new kind of community And through which he's bringing transformation to the world. Look with me, Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Jesus is in the context. He has just healed this paralytic man who is lowered through the roof. We read in the Gospel of Mark and in Luke. Lowered through the roof and he said, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders are like, how can you say his sins are forgiven? Only God can say that. And so to demonstrate his power to forgive sins, he heals him. Neil talked about that last week. They're talking about that downtown this Sunday. And it's in that context. He's in Capernaum. There's this huge crowds that are beginning to follow him. And he's walking along through the city of Capernaum. Masses of amounts of people have seen his power, experienced healing, heard him say and teach incredible things. Then verse 9, And as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Sitting at the tax booth. If you've been around Christianity for a while, uh, you're familiar that Uh, tax collectors were like severely looked down upon. Uh, And I want to kind of bring you into that reality because it was a profound vitriolic disdain that the Jewish people had for tax collectors and for good reason. For good reason. 
the history of Israel, God had established his people through Abraham and had promised Abraham that they would inherit a land. And this is the land of Canaan, what became the land of Israel. And so in the book of Joshua, you see the, the people of Israel uh, coming out of Egypt, led by Moses through the wilderness. The presence of God is leading them. This generation dies and Joshua and Caleb and others lead them into Canaan. They take possession and they establish a kingdom. And eventually they have a king named Saul. And then after that, there's David. And then there's Solomon. And Solomon builds a temple. And it's this time where there's a kingdom. And God is there in the middle. And they offer sacrifices before God. And they trust in him more or less at different times. And they, and they worship him. And they orient all of their life around God's presence. And the promise is that somehow this kingdom is going to be a light to the nations, to the world. And somehow the glory of Yahweh, the God of Israel, is going to spread. And the knowledge of the glory of God is going to flood the whole earth from Israel from this kingdom. And this glory is going to spread and people are going to be turned to Yahweh and the hearts are going to be turned to him and they're going to worship him. And the promise is that God will bring restoration through the nation of Israel to the world. And the people of Israel compromise with foreign powers. They worship foreign gods. They turn away from God and eventually they're exiled. Uh, The people in Jerusalem in particular were exiled by the Babylonians. This is in the kind of uh, 8th century B.C., they're exiled to the Babylonians or to Babylon, and eventually, after about 70 years, they're, they're brought back and they return. But from that point forward, the people of Israel were under the thumb of oppressive empires. The Assyrians are first, then the Babylonians. After the Babylonians, you have the Persians. After the Persians, you have the Greeks with Alexander the Great. And from the Greeks, these kind of kingdom gets divided up. You have the Seleucids. And the people of Israel have never experienced the sort of glory and the joy of this incredible promise. They're this light to the nations, worshiping God with this sense of God's going to use us to transform the world. Instead, they just feel crushed and small and oppressed. And they only have so much freedom. And if they do too much or worship in different ways, they get pushed down again and again and again. And this promise that God was going to bring light to the world and transformation through them and through him blessing them, that he would bless the world, it seems so distant and so far off. Why? Because they're constantly surrounded by foreign powers and empires that are oppressing them. In around 64-ish BC, the Roman Empire is on the rise, and the Roman Empire makes its way into Judea or Palestine, and it takes over, and the Israelites are now under the thumb of Rome, which would be one of the greatest superpowers the world has ever seen. And Rome did a lot of good things for societies. They brought some resourcing and some organization and infrastructure uh, to societies, but they crushed peoples and cultures, crushed them. One of the ways they crushed them is by exacting an oppressive tax policy, that the people could operate in this land and they could kind of do some religious things, but they had to tax and were taxed on everything that they did, whether travel or commerce or produce, whatever it was, they were taxed. And the taxation left so many people impoverished, marginalized, kind of scraping to get by. And the way that they exacted this tax, the way that they worked it out was actually really brilliant. They would actually, in every kind of province of the Roman Empire, they would hire people from the people group that were kind of getting possessed and colonized. They would hire people from that people group to be a tax collector, to be the agent through which they exact their oppressive tax policy. And so in Israel, they would find Israelites. The problem is for Israelites, everything about Rome's occupation of Israel was despicable. Everything about it was 
was evidence of everything that's wrong. They had this promise that they were supposed to be a light to the nations and that God was going to fill the earth with his glory through them. And they're just stuck under Rome. And not only that, the reason why they're in this situation is because of compromise with world superpowers when they're not trusting in the Lord, not trusting in his faithfulness, a way to protect themselves, protect their comfort and protect their economy and protect their families was just if we just worship their gods and kind of participate and compromise with these superpowers, then maybe we'll be safe. That was the reason why they got into this situation in the first place. And so their hope was if we clean ourselves up, and if we show God how serious we are about his law, and show God how serious we are about obedience, and show God how serious we are about sacrifices, and how serious we are about temple worship, if we show God how serious we are about his kingdom, then finally he'll bless us again and help us cast off these oppressors. And so if a Jewish person decided to defect and sort of abandon and betray his people— to actually become an agent of the oppressor, to exact attacks that oppress them, it was not only hurtful because this is a person that will day in and day out be embodying this oppressive tax scheme, but it was also that very attitude that led them, that sinfulness that led them to this place in the first place. And so when the Jewish people thought about the tax collector in their town, where there would be a tax booth in their town and they have to tax on their produce and different things, every time you see this person, you're seeing a person who embodies everything that's wrong about your city and your town. Everything. And on top of all of that, that tax collector, the way they would make their money is by not just taxing what people were entitled to give to Rome, but they would raise those taxes. This is the way the system worked. And their wealth would be earned off of them asking for more than what Rome needed. And so the tax collectors were actually very, very wealthy because they were supported by a Roman guard and they were able to ask, ask for whatever taxes that they wanted to. And so they were getting wealth through the oppression of their own people. And so the way that the kind of people were thinking about the tax collectors. In fact, they, there's a passage in Leviticus, I think it's chapter 20, verse 5, that they applied to the tax collectors. And this passage is one that talks about God's attitude towards those who sacrifice their children to this God, Molech. He's saying that attitude is the attitude we ought to have towards tax collectors. Absolute disdain. And so a tax collector was wealthy. They had security. They had armed forces to protect them. But they were a cog in the system of Rome and they were despised by their own people, and they were absolute, dejected outcasts, hated more than any other person in the community. That's the background. This person would have been in their society day in, day out, and so Jesus is in Capernaum. He's been here healing and doing these incredible things for weeks, and, and as he's doing these things, this crowd is following him, watching him love and show compassion to the poor and the marginalized and the oppressed and watching him heal and restore those who are broken and sick. And this crowd of followers is following him and, and they just watch him forgive sins and watch him heal this paralyzed man. And they're walking and it's here in the passage. Jesus passed on from there and he saw a man, Matthew, sitting at the tax booth in the middle of the town. And he said to him, Follow me. Follow me. That phrase, follow me, is, is without doubt an invitation to discipleship. An invitation to be a part of this new community. And for that, that community that was following Jesus, this would have been the most stunning, frustrating, mind-bending, kind of devastating thing that Jesus could have done. 
Sure, he can help the poor. Sure, he can help the hurting. Sure, he can help the marginalized. He can even help the leper, even though they're unclean, but like it's a leper. But to help the person who's participated in the oppression of our people, who embodies every single thing that's wrong, who not only is not trying to obey Torah, but he's actually oppressing Torah, and he's partnering with the oppressors and the pagans. He is everything that's unclean. These people weren't allowed in the synagogues. They weren't allowed in temple worship. They were abandoned and ridiculed by their own families. The worst of the worst. And Jesus, without any statement of reason, without any statement of, you need this to be different and this to be different and clean this up, he just says, by sheer grace, follow me. And that's our first observation, that Jesus invites people into relationship by grace alone. Just by grace, Jesus is inviting people into relationship with him. In the first century, in the discipleship culture, the way it would normally work, the best of the best rabbis would begin to kind of get a kind of group of followers, a group of apprentices, a group of disciples. And the way they would get this group is the sort of creme de la creme of society would sort of apply to be disciples of the best rabbis. And so think about this, you're trying to get like a PhD or something, right? And so you need to prove that you've got good master's degrees, you've got good recommendations by good professors, and, and you like need all these things to prove that you could go study under whatever teacher at whatever, you know, whatever kind of like university you want to be at to get your doctoral degree in whatever enterprise. And that's the sort of system of apprenticeship and discipleship. So everybody else would come and be like, look, I went to Bet Sefer and I learned Torah. I went to Bet Midrash and I learned the prophets and I, and I started studying the rabbinic interpretations and I've been super stringent on obeying all the food laws and all the sacrificial laws and all the cleanliness laws. And look, I'm like the best of the best. Would you accept me as a disciple? And it's like, man, I got like 10 of you. I'll pick the best of the best of the best. And you can follow me, and you can follow me, and you can follow me. And then those disciples, in a sense, for that kind of excellent rabbi would be like a picture of how awesome that rabbi is. The, the high performance of his disciples would say something about the kind of quality of the rabbi. And Jesus just kicked that t- system in the teeth. He just kicked it in the teeth by calling to discipleship the worst of the worst. And so why would he do that? Because Jesus isn't calling people who are awesome to prove how awesome he is. He's calling people who are broken to prove how gracious he is. He's calling people who are stuck in sin, who find themselves helpless and outcast, who find themselves desperate, to actually kind of celebrate and magnify the depth and the extent of his love and mercy and graciousness towards the world. See, we're all broken. We're all broken, every one of us, all of us. But we tend to think about Christianity through this sort of like performance lens, a sort of like Christian meritocracy that what God needs from us is us to prove that we're good enough, that we've studied the Bible enough, that we've gone to religious stuff enough, we've done the right things enough and have not done the wrong things enough. And, and if we feel like we can do enough, then he, maybe he'll love us. And we don't think that in your head. If you've been around Christianity for any amount of time, you know that that's not what the Bible teaches, but we still live like that. Like somehow God's love for us ebbs and flows with our performance. Like his acceptance of us is somehow connected to or attached to how good we feel like we're doing. And it goes down when we feel like we're, we had a hard week. And it goes up when we feel like we're on fire for him. And it goes down when we feel like our heart is kind of waxed cold. 
We kind of walk through these kind of rhythms where we think that God's love for us is somehow attached to our performance and nothing could be further from the truth. The foundation of discipleship is that you've been reconciled to God by grace. Reconciled by grace. The problem with a system of works and earning is it leads to two things. It leads to either pride or shame. Pride is I'm crushing, killing it. God must be proud of me. I bet he's happy to have me on his team as a representative of his people. Most people don't feel that. Even the people who seem most like they might feel that, underneath there's shame. There's a reality of, man, I'm I'm pretending. You feel an internal phoniness. You feel like you're here on a Sunday, and it seems like you have it together, but you know you don't have it together. But you feel like you need to pretend like you have it together because it seems like everybody else has it together. I swear to you, nobody in this room or on our, in our community engaging online, nobody has it together. We don't. We're all broken. We're all broken. And Jesus gives grace to broken people. It's the foundation of discipleship. It's just awareness and honesty that I need grace. He's inviting us to follow him by grace and by grace alone. And look at what Matthew does. Jesus says, follow me. And Matthew says he rose. The word for rose is the same word used for resurrection. He rose up. He arose. He arose. Hallelujah. Matthew arose. It's like Matthew woke up when Jesus walked by and said, follow me. Matthew's like, yes. Why? Because you know deep down he has all the money. He has security. He has comforts. He has no experience of love. The Romans don't love him. He's just a piece of their system. His own family probably doesn't love him. His neighbors don't love him. The kids he went to school don't love him. And all of a sudden, here's a guy who looks at him and sees exactly who he is and is just going to welcome him. Just says, follow me. I accept you. I love you. I welcome you. And that love grabbed Matthew. And it just propelled him to just follow after Jesus. Uh, there are probably people in the room today that maybe some that have been in, around religion for a long time and you've been around Christianity and you've done a lot of good things and you, but you feel so exhausted at just the effort to just keep up with who you think you need to be. And you don't need to be anything to experience God's love for you. You don't need to achieve anything. You don't need to patch anything up. He just does. It's his character. He is love. He loves you. And so the invitation to you today is follow me. Be with me. Not do all the things for me. Be with me. Come as a disciple. Step number one, just come here. Just come here. Just be with me. It's like a kid that's going through a hard day and you feel one of your children like just having a hard time. You're just like, just come here. Just come here. and Just give them a hug and hold them. Just be with them. That's what Jesus wants to do to you. Now, there are other people who feel not the sort of burnt outness of all the duty and the obligation and religion. You feel brokenness. And you feel like, I don't know if he could ever love me. I don't know if people, if they knew what I've done and what I feel and the doubts I have and the things I've participated in and the questions I've gone through and, the, and my history and the failures and the brokenness that, I, that just feels so big in your mind. So what we just saying, our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. It's bigger. And he just says to you, I don't need you to clean it up. I need you first just come here. I love you. Follow me. Follow me. Just be with me. It's beautiful. It's grace. 
And it is bigger and more kind of farther reaching and more outstanding than your mind and my mind can even begin to comprehend. Its height, its depth, its width, its breadth is unending. He invites us by grace. And look what happens in the passage, though. It says this. It says, And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, in Luke, we find out that this is in Matthew's house. Matthew, in response to the grace of Jesus, throws a big party. It says Matthew prepares a feast and he invites Jesus into his house. And into his house, a massive crowd of fellow tax collectors and sinners came. It says many tax collectors and sinners came and they're reclining with Jesus and his disciples. They're just hanging out. It's not saying Jesus came to give them like a tutorial on what all needs to change in their life. He just says, you're welcome here. You're welcome in my community. That the community that Jesus is building isn't a community of have-it-togethers, got-it-all-rights, right doctrine, right behavior, right practices. It's just a community of just welcome. Come to me. Come to me. And this community is full of tax collectors and sinners, and it's visible. Even the community in Capernaum knew that these were the worst of the worst. Because the Pharisees will come by in a minute, and they'll look in the door, and they'll be like, those are the bad people in our society. What is he doing hanging out with the bad people in our society? What is he doing? So that's the second observation, that somehow the grace of Jesus attracts broken people. It's like compelling, it's inviting, it's magnetic. That in the brokenness, we are drawn to Jesus. And so when we create a Christianity where we feel like we have to pretend like we have it all together, we have totally missed the point of Christianity. We've missed the point of it. If we create a small group culture where people feel like, if I don't have it together, I need to like stay away from that community because that community is a have-it-together community. We're missing it. The reality is we're all broken. This community had a very visible and public brokenness. We in our culture, a lot of us, have a less public, less visible brokenness. And so to get honest about the reality of our brokenness means taking that invisible brokenness and bringing it to light and acknowledging the reality that we're messed up. Our marriages are struggling. Our our parenting, we're frustrated and overwhelmed and, and, and struggling with different things. We feel shame or exhaustion about the sort of life we're trying to live. We feel hyper distracted and addicted to substances and we're falling in these different areas and our hearts are just twisted and bent out of shape and we're living for all these things that we know don't satisfy but we keep doing it again and again and again and I just feel like I keep running away from Jesus over and over and over and my heart's never been on fire for him the way I want it to and I'm broken and I need grace. Hallelujah. Jesus is like, good, follow me. Come, come. And he creates a community of grace where people are honest about their brokenness, where we can be. We don't have to defend ourselves. We don't have to pretend. We don't have to pretend like our life's going great if we don't feel like it's going great. We don't have to play the game that everybody else is playing. We don't have to kind of like act like Everything's happy. Things can be happy. You can be happy and be a Christian. You can be joyful and be a Christian. You can be having a good season and be a Christian. But you can also be super honest about the brokenness. Because when we're honest about the brokenness, what shines is not the performance of the followers of Jesus. It is the magnitude of the grace of Jesus. And that's what we're supposed to celebrate as a people. It's his grace towards us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, now I see. Grace taught my heart to fear. Grace, my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. And it's the grace is the foundation, but the grace continues to be the sort of hallmark of this community. It's what it's supposed to be. 
an invitation to experience grace, and that invites us to vulnerability. Now, at the same time, that grace and this system of grace, this economy of grace, this culture of grace, the community of grace is offensive to a certain group of people, and that's the fourth observation, or the third observation, that the grace of Jesus offends people who don't feel like they need it. It offends people who don't feel like they need it. It says this, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When we think Pharisees, we think, ooh, the bad guys, because they feel like the bad guys in the Gospels. They weren't. They were just like people who loved the Bible. They took the Bible seriously. They took Torah obedience, like obedience to the law of God, seriously. It's like it said, the pastors and the seminarians and the Bible professors and the religious leaders were like, what's he doing hanging out with those people? Like, that's exactly what we're not supposed to be doing. All those people. And somehow Jesus is hanging out with all the people that are not doing what we're supposed to be doing. And we're over here doing what Jewish people are supposed to be doing. And, uh, and we don't get this, right? It's reasonable. It's reasonable that they would be concerned about why Jesus is hanging out with the tax collector. I want to remind you that tax collectors participated in the oppression of the Jewish people. Participated in it. And so for Jesus to just sort of like unequivocally welcome tax collectors into his presence was just stunning to them. Because in their mind, we're supposed to be working really hard to be faithful to God. And these are the people who are not only not working hard, they're like doing everything that is so visibly and kind of like explicitly immoral and unrighteous. So how is it that Jesus is spending time with this group when we're up here? And that's why this community of grace is so offensive because if you're winning the religious game if you're winning the Denver game if you're winning the career game if you're winning the family game if you're winning the household kind of like upgrade your lifestyle game if you're winning the game and you feel good that you're winning the game and now you're worthy of love and now you can have joy and now you can have meaning and you can have life and it feels like there are people that can have joy and meaning in life who've lost the game who are like the losers in the game, who are the worst of the worst, and they get to experience love and forgiveness and freedom and joy and welcome and flourishing life. And you've spent all of your energy trying to win this game that just the wrong game. Jesus doesn't even care about it. He's just like, follow me. He's going to welcome the righteous people. You can follow me too. But sometimes their righteousness is what gets in the way. It's not saying, hey, Start doing bad things that you know you need Jesus. Just get honest about the brokenness in your heart. Get honest about your need for a physician. Get honest that the disease of sin runs in all of us. How it manifests itself, the symptoms with which it shows itself in all of our lives may be different, but the brokenness is down there. And it's deep. And the rabbit hole is dark. And when we are honest and attentive and actually recognize our need for a Savior, then instead of the grace of God being offensive, it becomes invitational and transformative. And so Jesus says, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. That's from Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, where God is talking about his people who have tried to be obedient to all of these rules, but missed the heart of the whole thing. And I think this is relevant for us in this culture right now. There's so much like, who's right? Who's wrong? Did you say the right things or say the wrong things? Or do you think rightly about this or think wrongly? Are you precise on all these things? And hey, theology matters and what we do matters. But if you are so focused on who's right, who's wrong, who's in, who's out, who's a Christian, who's not, who's on the right side, who's on the wrong side, that you miss just love, 
The word mercy here in the Old Testament is chesed. It's loving kindness. It's steadfast love. It's, it's like if you follow all the sacrificial rituals to a T, you know all the theology, you know what to do, and you do it, and you don't just love people, you've missed the point. You've missed the point. These Pharisees had missed the point. What they have the ability to witness is that the Messiah of Israel is bringing restoration and transformation and reconciliation to the most broken. And it ought to be something that we just celebrate. But because that felt like them a threat to their position, a threat to their rightness, they resisted it. They resisted it. And we have this invitation to celebrate God's grace. And the last observation that I think is just stunning that just runs through the whole passage is that the grace of God isn't just how God reconciles people. It's not just defining a new community. Is that the grace of Jesus brings transformation. It actually brings transformation. In the passage, Matthew doesn't continue to be a tax collector. He leaves his booth and begins to follow Jesus. The reconciliation is all grace. But over the next years, Matthew will learn what it means to follow Jesus. It's like Zacchaeus is another tax collector in the, in the Gospel of Luke. Zacchaeus is reconciled to Jesus, invited to follow him. And as, Jesus, as he begins to experience the generous love of Jesus, Zacchaeus is like, I'm going to take half of the money I've made and give it to the poor. Anywhere I've extorted, I'm going to take four times what I extorted from people and pay them back. Like it cultivates this new kind of graciousness and generosity and self-giving love for other people. It actually changes us over time. The grace of God changes us, and that's what happened for Matthew. Matthew begins to follow Jesus in this moment, and he'll follow him for three years. He'll watch him love, watch him serve, watch him forgive, watch him heal, watch him do justice, watch him confront kind of opposition and injustice, watch him forgive, watch him show mercy to the broken, and he'll experience that, and then he'll see Jesus hanging on a cross Watch him lay his life down as self-giving love. Watch him risen from the dead. Matthew fills, gets filled up with the Spirit, begins to tell people about God's grace, and then decides to write a biography about Jesus so that you and I could hear the same invitation. Follow me. You and I could experience the same grace. You and I could see the same love. And you, can, you and I could be reconciled to the same God, be involved in a new community of grace 2,000 years later, and become the people through whom God is spreading the good news of his grace to the world. And we get to be a part of that. And so the question is, do we hear the invitation of Jesus even now, wherever you're at, by grace, follow me. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you now in need of you. We pray you would open our hearts to the power of your grace and your love towards us. That where we feel broken, where we feel the reality of the darkness within us, that you'd soften our hearts to experience the transformative power, the healing power of your grace. And would you make us a community of grace? In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at partchurch.org. Peace and love.